welcome to Madeline Looks Back, a podcast dedicated to the female gaze. I'm Natalia. And I'm Veronica. And today we'll be talking about Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Also known as Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey. Although we prefer the long, wordy title. Why did they change it? I think it was like a marketing problem. Mm. Like people didn't know that it was a Harley Quinn movie necessarily, and she's kind of like what was going to draw people in, theoretically. Oh, so they moved her name to the to the first two words instead mm-hmm. of the last two words. Correct. Yeah, maybe some people aren't making it all the way to the end of that title. Okay, some background. So this movie was released this year, 2020, and it was written by Christina Hodson and directed by Kathy Yan. And obviously stars Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. It's also available to watch on HBO. Yes. Watch Newly. it. <laughs> if you haven't watched it yet, stop here and watch it and then come back. Yeah, we're definitely going to spoil it. So watch it first. Let's start. I don't know if it's too far back to start with like the origins of Harley Quinn. but um... <laughs> Well, we could start how the movie started where she was like, they say if you want to tell a story right, you got to start from the beginning. And then it's like the sperm going into the egg and she's like, too far. And then she's like, like the the cartoon intro moves forward to when she's a child and her dad's drunk, and uh, that's exactly what we're doing right now. <laughs> I I wonder if you would be down to do the whole episode in your Harley Quinn accent. <laughs> um, you know, it might get a little bit messed up at one point because we watched The Departed last night, and I was <laughs> definitely impersonating Matt Damon for a significant period of time last night before I went to bed. So I think that eventually this would morph into like a weird southeast boston like just horrifying <laughs> irish inflected and then generally devolving into nothingness accent um we could give it a shot <laughs> <laughs> please quote her a lot so this movie was kind of a spin-off of harley quinn's character in suicide squad which neither of us made it through the whole movie because it was terrible after watching this movie, I was like so enamored with her character that I tried to go back and watch it again, and I still couldn't do it, even with like this newfound adoration of Harley Quinn driving me through. I got like 10 minutes further and was like, nope. It's just terrible, and I don't really think that it does her character justice, which I think is like one of the things that was really exciting about Harley Quinn being made, is that we actually got to like see this character be developed. What did you look into this week to bring to our episode about Harley Quinn? I tried to find some scholarship on this character. I did find one that was, like, someone's master's thesis about, like, gender and um, intimate partner violence in, like, the Batman series Gotham City Sirens, which is, like, a Birds of Prey-type girl group with Poison Ivy, Catwoman, and Harley Quinn. And I don't know, that just got me interested in looking at, like, the origin of this character, like, in the Batman canon. I was always more of a Marvel person, so I don't really know a ton about the DC universe. But yeah, just like the development of her character historically is kind of interesting and like is a little bit in contrast with the Harley Quinn that we see in this movie. Let's talk about that. I would love to hear some backstory. I don't know too much about Harley Quinn. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't either until this morning. (laughs) (laughs) But... So her her origin story, she kind of has a couple different ones and just like the different ways that she's been introduced throughout the comics. But basically the established story is that um, she was Dr. Harleen Quinzel, a psychologist 
who was in some versions of the story employed at Arkham Asylum and in other versions of the story like infiltrated it as like an undercover. But basically she has this like interest and like I think some of it is from her like mentor Dr. Marcus with a K who instilled in her this idea that like chaos is at the center of everything and so she's like becomes drawn to the Joker as this like agent of chaos. She falls in love with the Joker and kind of like decides to be his sidekick on again off again girlfriend and usually like her character is just like really defined by her relationship to him and doesn't really have like a ton of agency of her own which is kind of I think what she gets to break free from in this movie that's interesting because yeah in the setup of the movie when we see her origin story it seems pretty clear that she's driven by like not what you've described as kind of like this psychological slash personal attraction to the Joker as an agent of chaos. But in the first scenes of the movie, we instead see somebody who just like is really looking for love. So it seems like she's had some really unsuccessful relationships. She throws herself into her work as a psychiatrist and then she falls in love with the Joker and it's because she's looking for love. It's not something like deeper than that. Like she seeks that affection and approval. So that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, that's a good point. And another thing is that she doesn't really have powers like in in that superhero sense that we kind of come to expect. But I guess in the kind of DC canon, by the way, this information is from dcuniverse.com. She gets injected by like poison ivy with this toxin that helps her like, it's like an antidote to poison ivy's own venom. And makes her immune to some things and also, like, enhances her strength. But she was already, I think, like, a a martial artist or something like that. That makes sense. And it also kind of pairs with what we see in the movie where she seems to have, like, a lot of agility and some gymnastic prowess and strength and speed and a lot of things like that. Yeah, now that you say it, she wasn't a martial artist. She was a trained gymnast. That makes way more sense. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) That does make sense. And has, like, a genius-level IQ, apparently. Which is, like, really one of the best lines in the movies, like, when someone calls her dumb and she's like, I have a PhD, motherfucker. I think that is interesting because she very much does play, like, this demure kind of sidekick role where she kind of plays dumb blonde, as in she definitely plays dumb blonde. And there are a couple scenes in the movie where you can see that she's deliberately kind of stoking the fire and pissing people off, but pretending that she doesn't know what's going on. And then she'll, like, grin a little bit as an aside, which I really love. Yeah, I think that that is, like people are naturally going to underestimate her and she really plays into that. Should we talk about the plot of the movie a little bit? Sure, yeah. We get this beginning in the movie where it sets Harley Quinn up as this person who's really starved for love and affection because of her childhood. So the first scenes of the movie, it's really quick. It's just a sequence that kind of sets up that idea. And then it shows that she broke up with the Joker and she's kind of setting out on this new life and trying to find herself within that. So She realizes, though, that she's been kind of an asshole and pissed a lot of people off. And when she was dating the Joker, that was fine because everyone was afraid of her. But now that she's broken up with the Joker, it's not fine anymore. Sorry, did I say everyone was afraid of her? Everyone was afraid of him. I think you did say her, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. No, everyone was terrified of the Joker, so they wouldn't go near her. But now that she's not protected by him anymore and he doesn't really care, it's like open season on Harley Quinn. Mm -hmm. So that really sets up the plot of the movie. Then there's some intersecting interests with like police officers and other characters who have their own motives for getting involved in like the certain crime syndicate and in this world at this time, which is really typical of any action hero movie. You always have side characters coming in and out and like plot lines overlapping. So the movie really turns into that. And then it kind of becomes like 
this ragtag group of women who have all bonded together in pursuit of a common goal, which is like defeating Black Mask. And they all have their different reasons for it. It's very much like a relationship of convenience rather than that they're actually like bonding with each other in any personal way. Yeah, that's something that I was asking Michael last night, like, okay, what did you think of Harley Quinn? Give me things to talk about for the podcast. And he kind of liked that aspect of they're not necessarily like, we're best friends now. They don't all really like each other, but they just like come together because they know that they need to take this guy down. Right. And it's it's pretty clear that they can't do it on their own. You know, we have a police detective who's been overlooked for promotions and doesn't have a lot of power within the department. A lot of people dismiss her. She certainly can't take down all of these people on her own. We have Harley Quinn, who has like some super strength and some powers, but is like somewhat above normal. And she can't take down this guy and his entire crime syndicate on her own. We have Black Canary, who's kind of like reluctantly drawn into all of this and has some superpowers, but again, like nothing super spectacular. She's not like Superman. She's not Batman. She can't, again, do all of this on her own. And then we have the character of the Huntress, who's really just seeking revenge and just wants to kill somebody. So she's not even like really (laughs) super involved. I'd say she's like the least committed to this other than she wants to like live and kill somebody. A lot of somebodies. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. They call me oh she's my favorite character so good but the research that i did for this podcast led me to this it's like a journal article it was published in the southern southwest review and it's called the prophetic vogue of the anti-heroine and it's by a woman named nona balakian she was born in constantinople so Nona balakian she worked at the sunday book review for the new york times as an editor and she got her undergraduate degree at Barnard and graduate degree from Columbia School of Journalism back in the 70s, I believe. No, I think it was earlier than that because she was born in like 1918 or 1919. Anyway, the article was published in 62 and it's talking about this point in time of how women are expressed in literature by male and female authors. And it's about one specific, it's about one specific author D.H. Lawrence and like a new play that he had come out but she kind of goes into this background of all the different ways that women are portrayed as like flat characters in literature and she's making this argument actually against anti-heroes and I'd argue that Harley Quinn is actually an anti-hero but it's not bad so that's the setup but she defines anti-heroes as She's kind of like picking apart this portrayal of women as not being complex characters. And she says, they might more reasonably be called anti-heroines since they are as atypical as the anti-hero, that hard-headed, weak-willed being with a highly developed sense of his limitations who has been replacing the conventional hero of late. And she talks about these slot women characters who are either asexual, the way that Truman Capote sometimes portrays women, or like super driven by sexuality. Tennessee Williams is one of the examples that she cites. She talks about Lolita a little bit. Mm. She gets into all of these different types of women. And the one that kind of struck me as being similar to Harley Quinn was, so this is under the section on Tennessee Williams. And she's talking about a streetcar named Desire and Blanche Du Bois or Du Bois perhaps. And it says, 
She defends her lapse into promiscuity and a streetcar named Desire, panic to find after the death of her dissolute husband, the self she imagined had been caged these many years. But that self, a fabricated image of gentility and innocence, is beyond recall, and the real self, disused and unengaged, has atrophied. So it's this idea that this woman, like, in pursuing her life with her husband, really neglected her own self. And then when she goes back to find it, it's kind of not what she expected it to be or it doesn't exist at all. And that kind of drive motivated by passion, to like, in how she lives her life, that reminds me of Harley Quinn. As well as this idea that once she breaks up with the Joker, she realizes she really has nothing of her own. Like, she doesn't have her own place to live. She has to get an apartment. Like, she doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have any connections, power, money, nothing. She spends, like, her last few dollars on a breakfast sandwich. And then she actually ends up being, like, a dollar short or something and has to promise the guy that she'll come back and give him the dollar. So really just left with nothing. And this movie in a way is a bit of a self-discovery, but I also like that she's an anti-hero in that she's not like, she's definitely not driven by like doing right or doing a good thing for humanity in this movie. She's just driven by her own self-interest, which bring her in different directions. Like she doesn't want to die. She kind of wants people to fear her because she thinks she deserves some credit. And yeah, she's just clawing her way towards self-discovery. Yeah, absolutely. That description definitely sounds like her. A couple of things that I wanted to like pick up on from what you said. Yeah. So in that article I mentioned earlier, that thesis, it's called uh, Siren Song, a Rhetorical Analysis of Gender and Intimate Partner Violence in Gotham City Sirens. So that's like the comic I mentioned in which Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn, and Catwoman are kind of like banded together. And it's written by Catelyn Schmidt. But yeah, she talks a little bit about how, like, Harley Quinn is so much defined by her relationship to the Joker, and even though, like, he's perpetrated all this, like, violence against her, and she calls out this little scene where she kind of says, like, oh, I'm done with the Joker, and Catwoman tells her, like, oh, please, he'll be calling you for money the second he hears about it. Ivy says, then you'll be skipping out the door for another round of abuse, humiliation, and regret. And her response is, has he called? Um, So, like, (laughs) even though he's, like, not even a character in this, it's, like, she's always, like, very defined by him. So, yeah, like, what you mentioned about her, like, then having to find herself in this movie when he's out of the picture and, like, she's kind of making the decision to leave it like that. Like, she makes that public display of their breakup by blowing up the lab or whatever. It's like a chemical factory, I think. Right. But then in this article, Schmidt also talks about how her visual depiction and how, obviously, because she's a a comic book character, you know, meaning is made as much from words as from images. And she talks about her kind of schoolgirl look and basically compares her to a Lolita kind of character. So um, that was interesting that you mentioned that in your article as well. So she talks about this effect, this Lolita effect, quote, has appropriated and repurposed meanings associated with childhood, like innocence, purity, naivete, etc., with sexual activity. And that this is a way to, like, reinforce, like, passivity, innocence, and submissiveness as preferred characteristics for women. And she says, innocence and passivity is preferred because it allows a male viewer to take possession of the female sexualized image. As an object of desire, a Lolita's innocence implies that she easily conforms to her possessor's will. And so she's saying that Harley Quinn is very much portrayed this way with her kind of childish outfits and the fact that, you know, she's basically possessed by the Joker. 
Yeah, I, I actually want to continue on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Balakian touches on that a little bit more toward the end of her piece. She talks about how Lolita is presented, rather, as the norm of American youth, which is given every opportunity of shedding its innocence without at the same time assuming the responsibilities that come with maturity. And I feel like mm. that's particularly fitting to Harley. She She's also talking a little bit about like the portrayal of women by these male authors, which I think is going to get into like that power dynamic that you just were touching on. So she says, the writers I've discussed and many others as well appear uncompromising in their indictment of modern woman. Their portrait of her emphasizes all the darker negative qualities, loss of innocence, of selfhood, of sensibility, loss of the very capacity to love. So yeah, she's basically tearing apart this like kind of flat character portrayal of women in like relationship to men that's happening during this period of literature. And I do think it's interesting that like to bring all this back to Harley's schoolgirl looks, it's interesting because one of the first things that struck me about the movie was that I just loved the way that she dresses as a character. Mm-hmm. It's this idea, it's a very like all American kind of like 90s probably in my mind like schoolgirl blonde girl next door look but it's also like super twisted and kind of turned on its head because she's wearing you know short shorts which would nor- normally be denim shorts but hers are like sparkly and tight and then she has like fishnet stockings and instead of like white sneakers she has like crazy heeled white boots and then of course her entire body presumably like her skin is all whiter from earlier in the movie we see that she jumps into like a vat of chemicals for the joker so they have like that same like weird white looking skin and she's covered in like all of these tattoos that looks like she's done them herself and her hair is like bleach blonde but it also has like red on the ends of one side and blue on the other so it's like hinting at sort of like a weird britney spears but everything about her really rejects that schoolgirl idea so there are aspects of her that are innocent and kind of like not taking responsibility and sort of naive but it's also very much like throwing that idea of her as kind of like falling into this submissive role back on its face a little bit Mm -hmm. even though that might be the role that she had taken previously it's just sort of rejecting it in a way yeah absolutely like I think that that's that Lolita way that was the way she was traditionally portrayed and she kind of had these long pigtails and I I can't remember what the shirt said Maybe I should Google it, but I think in Suicide Squad, her shirt says, like, Daddy's a little something. Monster. Monster, thank you. Yep. Whereas <laughs> in Birds of Prey, her shirt says her own name. Like, she belongs to herself. And I think that one of the things, like, that, those awesome outfits that you're talking about is, like, one of the many things that, as you're watching this movie, you can kind of tell, like, this was made by women. And, like, she dresses for herself. Like you said, yeah, just reversing that schoolgirl look that is supposed to be appealing to men, which is super gross, and making it her own thing that she does for herself. I want to talk to you for a minute about punk rock. Okay. So I was just thinking a lot about this piece by Nona and and thinking about the fact that it was published in 1962, which is sort of during that second wave of feminism when women were looking for like equal rights and equal pay and everything like that. And I feel like we're also having a similar moment right now, but obviously many years have intervened, right? It's been... 60 years since this paper came out almost. So in between that second wave of feminism and our current civil rights movement, you know, we have had the 70s and like that whole like hippie free love movement. And then we had the 90s with punk rock and then 
I feel like there was sort of this stretch of like conformity and consumerism. And I'm just like, I always picture the 2000s as just being the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC wearing all white. That's like all <laughs> I can think of. And now we're sort of in this present moment. And it's interesting that Nona here is really rejecting this idea of an anti-heroine and really looking for strong female heroes in literature. But I feel like what we're seeing in TV and movies now is sort of like this punk rock infused anti-hero, anti-heroine where we have like Orange is the New Black, obviously Harley Quinn, Jessica Jones, Mm -hmm. all of these different comic book inspired but also not comic book inspired movies and shows that are showing these faulted characters that we still love they're not trying to save the world necessarily or maybe they are but they're kind of taking a lot of missteps along the way and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on like why that would be like why people are identifying with these people so strongly I have thoughts maybe not on that question exactly but I think that historically we've gotten a lot of male antiheroes that we get to love. So obviously the obvious example that comes, obviously obvious, um, the example that comes to mind (laughs) (laughs) is Walter White or Don Draper. You know, like these guys who suck or who end up sucking by the end of their storyline, you know, who are just awful people, make these horrible decisions, hurt a lot of people. But with women, like, we don't get to see that a ton in female characters. And I mean, that's always been the case. I remember reading something about Thelma and Louise. And, you know, those actresses talking about how cool it was to portray women who weren't necessarily likable. Because there's that kind of, like, likability trap. I think that's the name of the book by Alicia Menendez, (laughs) the likability trap. But that, like, women have to be, like, redeemed or have to be likable in some way. But then men don't. So it is kind of cool to get to see these characters. Like, I mean, Harley Quinn is kind of the worst. Nobody likes her. Not even her friends like her. Obviously, they end up respecting her for, like, what she does in taking down Black Mask. But, like, she's not necessarily likable. And it's just kind of cool that she doesn't have to be. And that's just kind of... Obviously, like, we're still talking about, like... This movie was still talked about in terms of, like, how did it do compared to male-led comic book movies? (laughs) So, like... There's not equality there, but at least it's, like, a step in that direction of, like, we can make similar, you know, characters that are unlikable, but that are still compelling. Yeah, it's a good point, because I feel like Harley Quinn is fairly unapologetic about who she is. She's, like, always describing herself as, like, a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Bad guy, however (laughs) it is that she says it. (laughs) And I think that that's in some ways really refreshing as a woman because I think that like for me at least I still definitely just out in the world in my job and my relationships with other people like there is that pressure to feel well liked and to kind of conform to a certain idea of what it is to be like a woman and acceptable in society and I think just like seeing that portrayed on screen is just really refreshing because it kind of shows that you can, to some degree, probably not to the same degree as Harley Quinn, be like somewhat self-interested and like pursue things for yourself. And you don't have to check every box of like the demure, innocent, yet sexual like female object that has become such a trope in literature and film for so many decades. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess we could start by exploring some of the other characters in the film. Yes. Because while Harley Quinn is a true anti-hero, like the other women are sort of, if not tragic heroes, then flawed heroes. Like they certainly have more of a sense of 
good and right. The Huntress is more of a vigilante because she had this childhood trauma where her entire family was murdered, so she's out for revenge. That's like a very Batman-style thing. And then we have this police detective who seems to be motivated by like really just being effective at her job and like putting bad guys behind bars. Um, and she's not necessarily going to play by the rules. Like she leaves the police station in a pretty epic way um, with like her box of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, wearing some like ridiculous clothing that I can't even completely remember what she was wearing. I think it said it was like a t-shirt from the Lost and Found that said, "I shaved my balls for this." That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is actually kind of representative of, like, the shit that she went through at the police station in a way. Yeah, totally. Um, But yeah, we have, like, some some female figures who bond together to become the Birds of Prey, which is, like, a new crime-fighting force. And it it is kind of refreshing that, like, none of those characters are completely good or completely perfect. Like, at least initially before they kind of band together and become a force for fighting good. Like they're all just sort of self-interested. They're all just pursuing their own ends. Like black Canary is just trying to make a living and trying to make some money and like not necessarily get swept into this underworld of crime. The police detective is just trying to do her job. The huntress is just trying to kill some people. So it is kind of cool to see that representation. It is. Yeah. I, I loved huntress so much because she's such a badass. I just think it's so great that even though she, like, spent her life training to, like, get revenge on these mobsters who killed her family and she's, like, an amazing fighter, like, she spent her life training with assassins so she doesn't have any social skills and is, like, (laughs) super awkward. Uh, I love that scene of her practicing in the mirror, like, do you know who I am? (laughs) And also everyone keeps calling her something else. It's the crossbow killer, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Do you know who I am? crossbow killer no (laughs) so yeah she's such a great character you can tell that she's like never had girlfriends and she's just like so new to this dynamic and there's like all these great moments of like harley quinn just like really admiring her like after seeing her fighting and she's just like you are so cool um which i don't think is anything she'd ever experienced before so yeah I, i really loved her character something that i loved about this movie a lot was just the fighting scenes Mm. and i can't remember if it was a video from the new york times i watched a video about it about just like the choreographing of these fight scenes which are just like really cool really dynamic i don't know like sometimes fight scenes are just like really confusing and you can't tell what's happening but it was interesting how they talked about how women use their bodies differently in a fight and, like, how, you know, like, you see Harley Quinn using, like, her legs a lot because, obviously, like, there's a lot of power and strength there as opposed to, like, her upper body strength. And she uses, like, a lot of creative weapons. The big mallet is, like, her signature weapon. But there's, like, the bat scene as well and just kind of, like, using things around her to, like, take down men who are obviously, like, a lot bigger and more muscular than her. So she has to use like this different style of fighting, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Definitely like visually, it was cool to see her. It seemed like in the fight scenes, she had to cover a lot more ground than you'd see when men fight. And I kind of liken it to like women's basketball versus men's basketball, where women are smaller and they have to like play the court more. Whereas male basketball players are playing on the same size court and they're much taller. So there's a lot more like passing and then just like, 
taking shots. Mm -hmm. And you see that a lot where she's like trying to, if she's like trying to take a guy to the floor, like she'll grab his neck and maybe like flip over him and then use her momentum and her weight to bring him down because she herself is like too small to just do that. Mm -hmm. So I won't say that the fight scenes are super realistic um, (laughs) for like a normal human to achieve, but it, it was pretty cool to see like that style of fighting. Yeah, and just that whole, like, I don't know, it's just, like, a visually a very cool movie, like, that the whole showdown is in that, like, fun house um, with, like, the crazy mirrors and, like, those giant hands, like, I don't know, there's just something, like, really fun about that. Yeah, and it also kind of harkened back to, if not something that was brought up in this movie, something that you definitely found in your research, which was that idea of chaos, like, <laughs> the fun house fight scene was very chaotic, and it was very, like, signature Joker slash Harley Quinn, and that, like, the floor was moving, and, like, there were all these crazy fun house mirrors, and she seemed really at home in the fun house, and everyone else was just struggling so hard to figure out, like, how do I balance on this? Like, what part of the room is moving? Yeah. Another great, great part of that fight scene, and I think that is something that everybody talked about after the movie came out, was the hair tie. When Harley just asks Black Canary, like, hey, need a hair tie? Because she sees that, like, her hair's flying in every direction. And she's like, yes, please. Um, Yeah, that's such a common part of the female-lived existence. Yeah. (laughs) So there's actually an interview with the director, Kathy Yen, on New York Times by David Itzkoff. He asked her about that wonderful moment and, like, where it came from. And so the director said that it was actually the writer, Christina Hodson, who came up with the idea. And she says, she and her sister were talking about why is it that all women in every action movie can have perfectly blown out hair and it's always down? I was like, you're so right. I put my hair up just to wash my face, to brush my teeth, to do very light amounts of yoga. So we wanted to give a big middle finger to some of those expectations. And I love that. Yeah, it's like such bullshit (laughs) when you see action movies where it's like their makeup is perfect and you know they're in a skimpy outfit that how could they possibly move in and so it just gave it that realistic kind of moment that you get what from having women behind the camera that like no that's not how women would act in a fight like you would need to get your hair out of your face just to be effective yeah I mean even the simplest things like if I'm gonna do 10 push-ups in the middle of the day to like take a break from having hunched shoulders at my desk like, I'm going to pull my hair back. So <laughs> sure as shit, if I was going to fight for two hours straight, it would be, like, out of my face. I love that you do that. I don't do anything like that throughout my day. I just leave my shoulders hunched. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> We're doing the best we can. I think it's interesting that the male characters in this movie are almost marked by their absence at least the joker is which mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier like if i think about strong male characters we have black mask but in an interesting inversion it seems like all of the male characters are actually like flat characters yeah that's so true i mean ewan mcgregor's ewan mcgregor he's gonna make any character great <laughs> and yeah that what was his sidekick's name Oh, gosh, I don't remember. It's like Zazzle or something like that. Yeah, he likes to, like, peel people's faces off. (laughs) Yeah, it it was, I don't know, I enjoyed that he was, like, a little bit misogynist and we get to see them, like, take him down. But, yeah, I I can't find it in the interview, but I did read that, like, they asked about, like, oh, do you, did you feel after the movie, like, you should have put the Joker in and the director and writer kind of talk about, like, how if you put him in the movie, it would have kind of become about him. And, like, his absence has to be kind of absolute for Harley Quinn to kind of just do her own thing. Yeah, that's very true. 
because she is so defined by him that without him being completely like cut out yeah no you're you're 100 percent right that's interesting yeah oh um the other thing i read when just looking up backstory is just that like originally harley quinn wasn't part of birds of prey like in any of the kind of dc canon things uh, but they just kind of wanted to find like an interesting way to bring her into that group and like bring all those awesome characters together and so yeah i kind of enjoyed the ending where like she she's not going to be a permanent part of birds of prey like they're going to continue to be vigilantes but she she just kind of does her own thing and um takes what's the girl's name it's not cassandra Kane. cassandra Kane. yes that's the one um so yeah she's kind of like the the driving force in the movie that she has that diamond that black mask wants and her story is interesting too she's just like never had anyone to protect her or take care of her and she kind of latches on to harley quinn in that way and harley kind of betrays her for a bit because she's like so concerned with taking care of herself but i i liked that in the end she kind of took her under her wing and like saw this like kind of fellow lost soul this person who doesn't want to conform and just kind of does things her own way yeah there's like that last scene where they're driving in the car and she finally gets to eat that breakfast sandwich that she tried to eat in the first scene and finally it all comes full circle the breakfast sandwich (laughs) i am just gonna randomly mention that i love black canary's hair in this movie it's fucking amazing and even more so amazing because in doing like a quick search it seems like the original black canary character was just like a white girl with bleached blonde hair Mm. so it's cool that they kind of kept like those gold highlights in the actress's hair for her role and her like a nod her outfits are so good this was a great movie i enjoyed it a lot any final thoughts just that scene in the beginning when she has her long pigtails and then she cuts them off and then she immediately looks at herself in the mirror and starts crying really stuck with me (laughs) yes we've all been there like when you feel like you need to change your life you cut your hair short and then you're like what the fuck did i do (laughs) no yeah i've actually never done that but i understand that that type of desperation (laughs) that makes sense to me should we do recommendations yeah what are yours I finally got HBO again. (laughs) I didn't have HBO for like a year and was struggling. But then you were telling me that I needed to watch Perry Mason and Lovecraft Country, neither of which I've started. Um, But did you watch Hollywood? No. (gasps) What am I doing? Well, I have been watching. I've just been watching Euphoria, which is very good. Oh, man. I only got like four episodes in because my boyfriend started freaking out. and He was like, (laughs) I can't handle it. Um, I get it. The soundtrack very great soundtrack so good it's very good but actually what i was gonna recommend was not that i got like hbo max it's like hbo just release one product but um they have like all the like turner classic movies mm-hmm. and they just have like a ton of like old school classic black and white movies which is really taking me back to my filmy days and last night i was watching cleo from five to seven which is a French movie, like, early 60s, black and white, like, everything my film snob heart loves about this, like, vapid singer who is waiting for test results to find out if she has, like, terminal cancer, and it's just, like, these two hours of her life. It's a film by Agnes Varda, who's, like, really beloved and respected as a filmmaker. And, yeah, it's just really good, classic, like, filmy goodness. That sounds amazing. 
How about yours? I've really been enjoying Hollywood. <laughs> it's on HBO. It's a re-envisioning of what Hollywood would have been like had back in like the 40s and 50s, had they actually brought Black actors and Black actresses and Asian actors and actresses in as like leading roles in movies and romantic interests rather than just like tropes and side characters. Ooh. And like what would have happened had Hollywood been more inclusive of like, I don't know gay people and so anyone other than the <laughs> accepted societal roles yeah like mostly white males and a couple white females so that's been really cool it's it's definitely interesting to watch hbo sponsor us we mentioned you a thousand times on this episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah come on <laughs> uh well thank you for potting with me thank you for potting with me and for all of our listeners out there, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast wherever it is that you get podcasts. Check out our website. Drop us an email. Subscribe. Follow us on social. Yes, subscribe to the newsletter. And we'll see you in October for some spooky Halloween fun. This podcast is produced and edited by its hosts. The music is Lost Souls by Portrayal. You can find a list of all the articles and theorists we cited today in the show notes.